Thank you, Ken. Good morning, church. Good to see you. If you join us online, we welcome you and glad you're joining us, but we prefer to have you in person if you're able to do that. I'm super glad to be able to gather in this place as the body of Christ to hear from God, to encounter God, and to spend time with one another. Um, we're in the book of Jonah, and we're off to a good start. We're going to make it through the end of chapter one today, and so that's where Ken was reading. If you want to go ahead and turn there uh, in your Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, there are um, Bibles, they're black, they're under the seats around you. That's our free gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. Um, not the one on the seat next to you that has somebody else's name. That one's not for you. It's the ones under the seat. But seriously, we want you to have a copy of God's Word. Please take that home with you. Write your name in it. That's, that's our free gift to you. Um, just a quick announcement. If you are a dad with um, sons um, who fall between the grades of 3rd and 12th grade, uh, I want to invite you to something exciting coming up. We have a father-son retreat coming up. Uh, to my knowledge, this is the first time ever we've done anything like this. Super excited uh, to get to do this. Our next-gen um, group is putting this together, which is Blake Godsey, our kids' pastor, Jeremy Williams, our student pastor. They're working together um, to provide opportunities for families to cultivate spiritual growth together. Um, the, the ladies, if you remember back in the fall, got together for a karaoke night, had a fun time with the moms and daughters. This is the dad's version. So um, dads, uh, if you, again, if you've got sons between third and 12th grade, I'm really excited um, to get away like this with other men is always like fruitful and like just really good and meaningful to worship together. But I'm excited to have like my boys along with me uh, this time and for them to get to fellowship and experience uh, men worshiping Jesus, men falling in love with Jesus, but also doing that with their friends. So just want to encourage you to sign up for that. That's, you can get to it on our website. If you go to the website, uh, events, if you'll click on that, it's right there. Just click on Father-Son Retreat. Um, or you can also do that from the phone app if you, if you have that as well. Just want to encourage you to sign up for that. Um, it is May 13th and 14th. Um, and there'll be a slide up at the end of the service in case you miss those details. All right, so we are in Jonah chapter 1. So far, um, what, we've, what we've learned together is that Jonah is not um, a book in the Bible about Jonah. <laughs> Uh, he's one of the characters, but it's not about him. It's not about a big fish. It's not about a storm. It's actually a story about a big God. And in this story, we see that it's not just about the principles of here's how you avoid storms in life, that it's actually a foreshadowing of the good news of the gospel. We've already begun to see that. Like even in the first six verses of Jonah, we see how God in his kindness um, raises up this tempest or this big storm to stop Jonah in his tracks and his disobedient running from the Lord and his shame to turn Jonah back not just to obedience but to an abundant life to true joy to true living walking with the Lord and so we, we learned that last week that even even in the storms of our life these can be expressions of God, God's kindness to us when he stops us in our tracks and halts us in our disobedience and then turns us back to himself we notice that that we think about Jonah's message of repentance. He was to go to the Ninevites. We see quickly that Jonah himself is in need of repentance uh, to come before the Lord, to confess what he has done, and to experience the Lord's kindness. But it's actually the pagan sailors who he's running with who are closer to repentance than he is. And we're going to see that again today in the next few verses. But just some, some context here of, of where we're going today. Uh, we're going to see two things, I hope, clearly today. One, we're going to continue to see um, the powerful, sovereign hand of the Lord uh, to bring about redemption according to his plan, despite Jonah's attempt to thwart that plan, despite our attempts to thwart his plans, that in his kindness, um, God's will prevails. 
The second thing is this, that actually the sermon title is The Prevailing Love of God. I almost just shortened it to Love Wins. Um, and, 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 and by that, what I mean is this, that when, when God goes to bat for you, his love always wins. It prevails. And despite Jonah's attempt, again, to run, despite the sailor's attempt to, to handle things on their own, we're going to see that God's kindness and his love wins. That's good news. That is good news. And that's where we're headed today. And so the context here in the first six verses, Jonah has run. He's jumped ship. He's headed the opposite direction of where God told him to go. He's headed away from Nineveh. And he's hiding in the bottom of the, the boat, hiding from God and God's uh, the shame he feels and the potential that God might be mad at him. He's just running from God. And God rises up this storm to stop the boat. And the sailors have begun to come desperate. These pagan sailors, they've cried out to their gods, and it didn't work. It didn't fix anything. So they've gone down into the hull of the ship, and they've woken up Joe, and they're like, we need you to call on your God. Maybe he's the one responsible for this storm. Maybe he can do something about it. We see their desperation because they've already started throwing things overboard, just trying to keep the ship afloat and stay alive. And so it's from there we enter into verse 7. And they said to one another... Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. There's a little cultural context here. The idea of casting lots, um, I think if you're familiar with like the Vikings, they use runes. Um, it was a lot like rolling dice. Like they had, you know, like a handful of like stones, little stones that had markings on each side and they would shake them up like you're rolling dice and they would trust that however the dice fell it would reveal the the will of the gods so the pagans use this um, god's people even use this and he actually gives his people instruction to use lots for different reasons one would be the dividing of land we see this in the book of numbers and joshua when they're dividing up the promised land god instructs them to cast lots and let the lots determine who gets what piece of land uh, they would also uh, use this in general for just discovering the will of God between two good options or multiple good options. Like, hey, there's two or three good options here. We don't know which one God has for us, so then we'll cast lots. We'll roll the dice and let the dice tell us which way God wants us to go. Another, another use for lots for the people of God was in calling somebody to a position or like replacing somebody in leadership or authority. And we see this um, even in Acts 1. Um, you've got uh, the, the 11 disciples, and they need to replace Judas. How do they replace Judas? They're like, well, we've got a couple of good options here. How do we know which one is the will of the Lord? And so they do what? They, they cast lots. They roll the dice there to determine the will of God. Now, anytime there's a casting of lots by the people of God, it's not in an attempt to determine good from evil, but simply to determine the, the Lord's will between multiple good options. That's when we typically see it used. But anytime God's people are casting lots, what they're saying is we don't believe in coincidences. We don't believe in circumstantial happenings. We believe in the sovereign hand of the Lord. And so when the, the people of God cast lots, essentially what they're saying is we trust God's hand, not just his sovereignty, but his goodness, that he will manipulate and control even the way these stones fall to reveal his good, perfect will for us. The book of Proverbs says it this way in Proverbs 16, says, The lot is cast into the lap, 
but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now here we've got a situation where you've got pagan sailors who were doing what pagans did when they didn't, couldn't figure out what the will of, of, the, of the gods were, gods with a lowercase g, so they cast lots, yet it is the one true God who places his hand over these, uh, the, 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 the lots being cast and essentially lands them on Jonah. Like we don't see this now as like, oh, that's a coincidence. How lucky, how fortunate it pointed to the right one. We see this as the sovereign hand of God even over the smallest details of these stones falling to reveal the answer to the question, who's responsible for this? So verse eight, after the lots fall on Jonah, uh, they, they say to him, tell us whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So they already know Jonah's responsible. They're essentially coming to Jonah and say, okay, tell us who you are. Help us understand why this is happening to us. Where are you from? What did you do? Where did you come from? And Jonah's response is really interesting. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He gives them three responses. He first indicates that he is a Hebrew, one of the children of God. He indicates that not only does he know who God is, but that he's like, he's one of God's people. I am a Hebrew. And then he goes on to say what? And I fear the Lord, which is an expression of worship. Like, I bow my life before the Lord in adoration and respect and reverence. I worship the Lord. And then he identifies the God who he worships as the creator God, the maker of heaven and earth, who controls the land and controls the sea. Now, in Sunday school, these are the right answers. Jonah's not in Sunday school. Like, let's think about that for a minute. He's giving these answers, these correct answers, while running in disobedience. Right? He's saying, I'm a child of God, I'm a Hebrew, while acting like he's not a child of God. Or at least a child of God who doesn't trust God as a loving father. He's saying, I fear the Lord and I worship him while doing what? Running in disobedience. I worship the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, who controls the land, he controls the sea, while yet he didn't trust the Lord with his own life. I wonder how many times we do that in the church today. Can we just be honest? How many times do we walk into church a building that we call a church where god's people gather and from the parking lot we go ahead and put on the jonah mask somebody asks me how i'm doing i already have my answer prepared good and then i deflect really quickly how are you i'm so close right so close to this before you can get the second question out i'm going to deflect to you fine fine how are you made it made it through the foyer we made it through the commons area now let's find our seat hopefully nobody's sitting in our seat that's going to be awkward and find our oh, good nobody's sitting in my seat because everybody's sitting in their seats everybody's in their religious places and they're like okay now i know now everything's good i made it i wasn't found out hurry quick start singing start singing before somebody walks over and starts talking and the band starts singing and then we start singing things Right, that we might believe in our head are true, but truths that we aren't actually walking in. 
That's what Jonah's doing right here. I mean, he was taught these things from a little boy, and maybe he somewhere deep down believed them in his head, but he's not walking in these truths, is he? He's not walking in the identity of being a Hebrew, one of God's children, trusting the one true God as a loving father. He's not walking in worship and reverence and fear of the Lord. He's walking and he's running in fear of the Ninevites. He's definitely not displaying his trust in the sovereign hand of the Lord who can, who can control how the little pebbles fall, who can control the weather and, and cause a storm to rise up, and who can also cause the storm to be still. Matter of fact, we're going to see that the pagan sailors are closer to this identity than Jonah is. Verse 10, the men respond now to what Jonah has said. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? How do we fix this? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. I want to bring something up here that I think has some bearing on what we're seeing happen here with Jonah. See, there was another occasion in Hebrew worship where they were instructed to cast lots. The book of Leviticus tells um, the, the priests that when it's time to slaughter the goats as a sacrifice for the sins of the people, that they're to bring in two goats. One goat, um, where the priest will lay his hands on the head of the goat, symbolizing the sins of the people being placed on the head of the goat. And this goat is the scapegoat sent out into the wilderness in the desert. Sometimes just to make sure that he died, they'd run him off a cliff, but ultimately he was, a, he was, he was sent out into the desert as a sacrifice to Satan himself. And then the other goat would be sacrificed right there as unto the Lord. And the way they would determine which goat went where is they were instructed to cast lots. Let me just read this from Leviticus 16, starting in verse 8. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, and one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for Azazel, which was the idea that Satan himself lived out into the desert. This was the father of all demonic activity and evil. And this was the one they were sending the scapegoat out into the desert to meet. Verse 9, And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. I don't think explicitly the casting of lots here is exactly the same, but you can definitely see a theme here, a pattern, even in Jonah's story. Jonah first running from the Lord out into the wilderness as far away as he can from God himself, essentially looks like the scapegoat. 
sent out into the wilderness. And now, now that he's cornered, now that he's caught, now that the lots fall on him, he's like, okay, now I want to be the sacrifice. Throw me, throw me into the sea as a sacrifice. In an effort to do what? To try to continue to maintain control of the situation and fix it on his own. We talked about last week how Jesus says, hey, I come as a better Jonah. I'm bringing the same sign of Jonah, the sign of repentance, but I'm actually here to, to be a better version of Jonah. Right? We talked about how Jonah was, was swallowed up in this, in, the, in, in this fish for three days, the way Jesus was swallowed up in the grave for three days. The difference is Jonah's running in disobedience. Jesus is, is walking in obedience. And so we can see that Jesus is the better, the better Jonah. And we think about Jesus himself coming as that sacrifice for us. I think about Jesus being led out into the desert like the scapegoat by the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of Matthew tells us he's led out into the desert and he's tempted. He meets Satan there and he's tempted three different times and he responds each time with the word of God. And then ultimately Jesus himself, right? The lots have fallen on the Son of God to go to the cross and to to be our sacrificial goat to atone for our sins. And while you can see this Leviticus pattern in Jonah somewhat vaguely, we see it clearly in Jesus who comes as a better sacrifice. Jesus is our scapegoat. But what I really want to point us to now is how you and I are all over this story. I want to walk through some of the responses of the sailors. First of all, the question is, what shall we do? How do we fix this? And then Jonah's response is not like, hey, God is the only one who can fix this. You need to go to him. That would be the right answer. He's like, throw me over. Let me fix it. And we see in the sailors, we see in Jonah, what you and I typically do when confronted with desperate situations is what? We try to fix it. And when that doesn't work, what do we do? We try harder. But let's look at it again. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. No, Jonah, we're not going to throw you over. We're going to fix this on our own. And here's what we need to do. We just need to row harder. That's the problem. We just weren't rowing hard enough. And so they rowed harder to get back to dry land, but they could not. That's a really important theological statement. They couldn't escape the storm on their own. They couldn't escape the sovereign hand of the Lord in their own strength. They could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Oh, church, how often do we try to fix our own problems by either becoming the sacrifice or by rowing harder? Like, how many times have, we, have, have you experienced hardship in life and rather than stopping in your tracks and seeing that hardship as an opportunity to, to witness and to experience God's kindness and lay your life before him and surrender yourself to him, instead you did what? You just rode harder. We do this in moral failure as well. We get to a place in our journey with God where the Holy Spirit and his word shows us things about our life, reveals sin, the things that we're hiding from God. And what do we do? Do we just willingly go, oh, here, let me expose that before the Lord. No, what do we do? We try harder. I'll get it right next time, God. I just need real harder. That's what the problem is. I need more accountability partners. I need more quiet times. I need to be in more community groups. 
I need to come to church more often. We look for opportunities to row harder, fix ourselves. It's not the solution, is it? Doesn't, it doesn't work. Quite simply put, they could not. Church, you can't either. In so many ways, we're going to see in the book of Jonah this foreshadowing of the gospel. I think about different individuals who came up to Jesus to ask him how to get to heaven. Um, most often, these were religious leaders, people who are supposed to have all the answers, who've been rowing really hard in life and realized that they were getting no closer to God, no closer to heaven. And they want some kind of security or some kind of peace. Think about like even Nicodemus who comes to Jesus in John chapter 3, and he's having this conversation about eternal life and, and like, how can I do this? And Jesus' response to him is, all you have to do, Nicodemus, is pretty easy. Basically, you just have to do something that you can't do. It's like, what? Like, his response was what? Got to be born again. Nicodemus is born again. Like, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't birth myself the first time. Can I, how can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? I, I can't do that. John chapter 3, verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? That doesn't make sense, Jesus. Like, that, how do I row harder and do that? Can, a, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, no, you can't enter your mother's womb again and be born. You didn't give birth to yourself the first time. Your mom did that. That was out of your control. Okay, well then how do I do this second one? How, do I, how, do I, how am I born again? I don't know how to do that. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know, it's out of your hands. You have to be born again, something you can't do to fix yourselves. We think about the guy who came to Jesus. This is recorded in Matthew 19, one of the places where we refer to this guy as the rich young ruler. He's a young guy who has it together. He's been working super hard in life. He's acquired a lot of wealth, and evidently he was really moral. Like people looked at him and thought, man, this guy has it together. That is a religious dude over there. And he comes to Jesus, and this is Matthew 19, verse 16. He's, 16, he says this, Behold, a man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? How hard do I have to row to get into heaven? Just want to make sure. Whatever it is, I'm going to row just a little bit harder. So can you tell me what the standard is? And Jesus, and he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, essentially, what he's doing is he's not telling him what to do to get to heaven. He's showing him how he can't get to heaven in his own strength. And so he follows with these questions. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the honest response to that would be, would be this. I can't do that stuff perfectly, Jesus. What you're asking me to do is too difficult. But that's not how he responds. In his arrogance, in his pride, in his self-sufficiency, the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? What's missing? 
I think I'm just kind of reading into the text here. I really think he wanted Jesus to say, you're good. I think that's what he was looking for here. It doesn't seem like he's really curious on how to get to heaven as much as he just wants to know that he's rode hard enough in life to get there and he just needs a rabbi to validate that. That's what it seems like to me. All these I've kept, what's missing? Jesus goes right for the heart, said to him, if you would be perfect, now that's important. We're in the gospel of Matthew. If you would be perfect, Earlier on in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 5, Jesus says, you can't get into heaven unless you are perfect, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes. You can't get into heaven. You can't row hard enough to get yourself into heaven. So I hear that same language here as Jesus says, okay, if you, if you would be perfect, perfect enough to get into heaven in your own strength, go, sell your, what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. And what happens next? When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. This ultimately is not about what this man needed to do to get into heaven. It was exposing what this man needed to lay down. Not only had he been a man of high morality and religious facade, but he evidently had a lot of possessions. He had been rowing really hard in life, and he had a death grip on those oars. And Jesus is saying, you want to get into heaven? You've got to be perfect. Let me tell you how to be perfect. Let go of the oars. That's not the answer I want, Jesus. I want you to tell me, like, I'm in, I'm good, or I'm at least, like, a couple of strokes away. Just row a little harder. I got a little more in me. And Jesus is like, that's not how you're going to get into heaven. You're going to need somebody who can make you perfect. So here's how you do that. You let go of the oars. You let go of whatever you're holding on to in life to validate yourself, to cause yourself to feel secure, Whatever you're doing to try to earn God's favor and make him like you, let go of that, and guess what? Through the grace of God, you can be made perfect. Because unless you're perfect, you don't get in. I can't do that. Yeah, once again. The the invitation of the gospel is to do that which you can't do. Right? You can't clean yourself up. You've been rowing hard your whole life and have not yet gotten to where you want to be with the Lord. The only way you get there, church, the gospel is invitation from Jesus. Come and take what I have and you'll have it. Put down your oars. Surrender to the Lord. I want to read for you guys just a summary of what the Lord put on my heart at this point in the story of Jonah. This is what I believe we're going to discover together over and over again, that the story of Jonah is a story about how God displays his grace towards the worst of sinners and how he faithfully unfolds his redemption story for each of us. What God is doing for Jonah, what he's doing for these pagan sailors, what he's going to do for Nineveh, he's doing for you today. This isn't a story about what Jonah can do to make God happy or what Jonah can do to save the sailors from the storm or what Jonah can do to save the Ninevites from the wrath of God. 
in the raising of the storm, in the simple casting of lots, God shows the intensity of his power and the intensity of his kindness. And in the end, we will see that God and God alone is in charge of saving Jonah. God and God alone is in charge of saving these sailors. God and God alone is in charge of saving the Ninevites. Jonah isn't even going to be happy about that in the end. The gospel is not about you saving yourself, church. It's not. It's not about you fixing yourself or earning your way into heaven. The gospel is about Jesus and Jesus alone saving you through who he is and what he's done. He is the Messiah. He is the perfect son of God. And he has laid his life down as an atoning sacrifice, a scapegoat for you. Your sins were placed upon him and he took those sins to the cross and then he took them to the grave and then he left them there and he resurrected from the grave. Displaying both his intense power and his intense kindness. He says to you and to me, come and take what I have and it will be yours. Come to me in faith, lay down your oars and you will be born again. You don't have to do anything to save yourself, number one, because you can't. If anything, rowing harder proves is that you can't row hard enough. And number two, he's already done it. He's already done the work. You think about that. Like, you're not asking him to go do something that he's got to think about or maybe he'll do it. He's already done it. He's already done the work to make us perfect. Now let's look at the, the sailor's response in verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord. You feel God's kindness? I mean, just a few verses ago, these guys were crying out to any God they could think of. They were throwing stuff overboard to stay alive. And it wasn't Jonah's witness that led them to the Lord. It was God's kindness and his sovereignty over the weather, his sovereignty over the casting of lots. That's what captured their heart. And here was their prayer, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. That's why we're in a storm. And that's why the lots fell on Jonah. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea. Don't worry about Jonah, he's gonna be okay. We'll get to him next week. They throw him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. This was not like that momentary bottle rocket faith where you get excited about Jesus and then trail off in a few minutes. They feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah claimed to fear the Lord. These men fear the Lord. It's not enough just to claim to know God It's not enough to claim to be a worshiper of God. It's not enough to to claim to be one of his children. Like we see in the pagan sailors what repentance looks like. Dropping your oars, bowing your heart before the Lord. Oh Lord, in your kindness, will you have mercy on us? And like a good dad, God shows up. And like a good dad, he wraps this, this, this coat around you and says, you're mine, come here. 
It's, in, it's with joy that God accepts us and receives us and forgives us and pours out mercy on us. He doesn't do it as a reluctant dad who's mad. He does it as a loving father who can't wait for you to turn to him. It didn't inconvenience God to have to save these sailors. Well, that's not what I was after. I guess I'll save these guys and then we'll get to Nineveh. No, God's like, yes, I'll take you. Yes, I'll accept you. Jonah did a poor job as an evangelist. He may have been a good prophet before, but he is a horrible evangelist. And yet God redeems the sailors despite Jonah's failure. That is the faithfulness of God's prevailing love. And that is the gospel. Quite simply put, Romans 5.8 says this, God shows his love for us he shows his love for you. He shows his love for me in this, that while we were still sinners running from God in disobedience, Christ died for us. Man, that's good news. Put down the oars. Put down the oars. Turn your heart to the Lord. Just a couple of questions for us to think about today. It's my assumption that we probably everybody in this room will fall into one of three categories some of you your relationship with the lord is fresh it's new you spent time with him today and you're coming in today and you're just receiving a, a reminder of the goodness of god you took communion today and your heart was already there before you got here and, and so today is, is a reminder for you it's a, it's a refreshing reminder of god's kindness to you maybe even a warning don't go back out there and pick up the oars for others of us Maybe you've been running like Jonah. And so this morning for you is an expression of God's kindness coming to you saying, hey, put down the oars. Put them down. See what I might do with a surrendered heart. I'll take the surrendered heart over rowing any day. Matter of fact, God says that in his word. Psalm 51. I desire that repentant heart over the sacrifice of bulls. Maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I've never had a conversation with that God. I'm kind of like the pagan sailors. I'm just like here trying to figure some things out and figure out who God is, and I want you to know. I want you to know who God is. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He controls the seas. He controls the dry land. I believe he brought you here today for this very purpose, that he might reveal himself to you. He is the one true God. He is a God of intense power. He has a sovereign hand, and he has a fierce love. He has a prevailing love for you, and when that love goes to bat for you, listen to me, it wins every time. Jesus went to the cross to take on your enemies, and he won. God doesn't need you to row harder. He needs you to surrender today. If you don't know how to do that, like that's a foreign concept to you, I've never prayed, I don't know how to pray, um, that's why we have prayer partners available at the end of our services. They're here to serve you and to pray with you. We'll have our elders available as always out in the common area, and the way that you'll know who the elders are, they wear lanyards. That's not so we look super official, it's just so you can identify us, you kind of know who to go to. We'd love to talk with you and even pray with you about making a decision to trust in Jesus today. 
Maybe as we stand to sing in just a minute, the words that we sing are going to be like a beautiful reflection of your heart, and like it's just going to be like your prayer flowing out, and you're going to be able to sing. But I want to give you permission, if you just want to stay seated and just kind of reflect on what you've heard, maybe what God has spoken to you, like, I don't want you to feel odd doing that, okay? So if the person next to you stays seated, don't elbow them. Give them some space to do some business with God. If you want to slip out and like, grab a prayer partner, grab an elder, go to the prayer rooms, like, I'm, going to, I'm going to give you permission to do that. If you want to stand and sing and worship the one true God, let's do that. So I'm, going to, I'm going to pray for us now. I'm going to uh, add just a couple of questions for you to think about before I pray. First of all, I just want you to think about how you typically respond when the storm hits. What is your go-to when you face a trial or a situation that seems to be out of your hands? Do you quickly turn and surrender to the Lord and lay your life before Him, or do you try to row harder? Maybe even think about a specific time. Maybe you're in it right now, but think of a specific time. How do you respond typically to difficult, desperate situations? And then I would just ask you to think about this. How does the story of Jonah give you hope today? Maybe even freedom? Let's pray together as our worship team gets ready to come back out. Father, thank you for this story of Jonah, which is really a story about you, and we're seeing that just more and more with each word, each verse, each chapter. Father, thank you for stories like Jonah that show us just how limited we are as human beings, even as image bearers, God. We don't have the power, the strength, the know-how to fix ourselves because what's broken is on the inside. And so, God, we confess together, all of us, God, confess together that we need you. We need help from the one true God today, the one who created the heavens and the earth and the one who created us. And the one who so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life and not perish. God, we want that today. We want eternal life. We want you to rescue us like you rescued these sailors. So Lord Jesus, as we stand to sing, as we respond in prayer, I'm just asking that you would make yourself known and that you would meet with us today, each one of us where we are. Jesus, we pray this in your precious name. Amen.